Hear now God's holy word from 1 Kings chapter 19 as we continue our study in the life and times of the prophet Elijah. Hear God's holy word. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word, the way you have preserved it for us. And we pray that the very same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would now direct us into truth. I pray that you would deliver us from error, deliver us from wandering thoughts, deliver us from every temptation in this hour as we hear your word. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> People of God, when your children are very small, I mean tiny, I'm talking about in diapers, when they're very small, rarely do you take into account their opinions on things like menus, schedules, activities. To be fair, everything you do is in their best interest. And so much of the life of the family tends to revolve around the needs of the weakest members of the family. But you really don't ask their advice on when nap time is, on whether we're eating peas tonight at supper, or where we're going for summer vacation. You aren't inviting their counsel on any investment opportunities, for example. There are things that mom and dad discuss and decide without any input whatsoever from the short people. The short people just are along for the ride. They're just there to you know, do what mom and dad say. However, as your children get older, you do begin to solicit their ideas. As they mature, you factor their desires and their requests into your thoughts. They're not gonna make the final decision, but occasionally you ask them, what would you like for supper? What would you like to do uh, this summer as we go on vacation? Do you like that house or that one? We're looking for a house, which one did you like? You get their buy-in, and this is one way that we help our children mature by communicating to them that you have thoughts and ideas and I wanna hear them. And I want to help you process your thoughts and ideas so that you're considering the good of the family. Even as you have things that you want, I want you to think in terms of what the whole family needs. We include them as junior counselors in the family because what they believe matters. And we're helping to shape that. We're training them to think through decisions, both great and small. Tell me your ideas and I will include them in my consideration of our plans. Now, if you and I include our older children in family discussions, and if we incorporate their desires and their thoughts into our decisions, is it any stretch to think that our Heavenly Father does the very same thing? He's not less loving than we are. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But he doesn't say, I really don't care what you think. He doesn't communicate that. He invites our petitions and our supplications, and he even works them into his plans for the world. God is sovereign, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will, but he also has sovereignly asked for the petitions and prayers of his people and incorporates that into his plans for the world. He wants to hear our prayers. He has taught us to pray, and he asks us to pray. 
in the scriptures, the prophets are those who are invited into God's courts as junior counselors. The office of a prophet is the office of one who makes petitions to God, who makes supplications, and then God incorporates them into his plans for the world. We see this with Abraham. Yahweh counseled Abraham when he was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the Lord said, how can I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then Abraham enters into that negotiation with God about uh, how many righteous people must be in Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord destroys it. The little book of Amos has that scene where the prophet is pleading with God to stop various plagues and various threats that God is sending on Israel. Amos pleads for God to relent and the Lord relents. And there's that wonderful line in Amos, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So God has incorporated the input of the prophets into his plans for the world. The prophet Jeremiah complains about the false prophets who have not stood in the counsel of Yahweh. And the Lord says, if they had stood in my counsel, if they had come up and made their petitions and supplications, I would have told them what I was doing. But because they didn't approach me, I didn't tell them what I was doing, and then therefore they did not announce my words to the people. They were unfaithful prophets because they did not take that privilege to come up into my counsel. Even the Lord Jesus, he gathers his apostles and he says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, I am calling you up into the council of myself and the Father so that as I share your petitions and I stand as a mediator between you and my Father, I'm sharing your petitions and acting as an intercessor before my Father, but he also has things to say to you and I'm gonna communicate those to you. But I'm considering you friends, you're not strangers, you're not slaves, you are friends. And, and it's apparent that as we grow into a knowledge of God's will, we are being matured into the image of his son so that God turns to his church and says, here's what I'm doing in the world. What do you think of this? What are your petitions? What do you want to see in the world? What makes you upset and angry and distraught and fearful and anxious? And what do you want me to do about it? That's how God addresses his church. He includes his church in the counsel of his will. He invites his church up into the councils of the Trinity. And that's what we do today as we bring our Psalms before him, as we bring our prayers before him, he hears and he responds to the voice of his bride. Jesus responds to the voice of his bride. In our study of the life of Elijah so far, we've seen how the Lord has been doing this with Elijah. Uh, there's been this constant conversation between Elijah and the Lord. The Lord has responded to the petitions of this prophet. Uh, the, way back in Deuteronomy, the Lord said to Israel, he said, if you pursue idols, I'm gonna stop up the rain and it's not gonna rain on this land. I'm gonna shut up the heavens. And Elijah takes that and he turns it into a prayer and he says, Lord, you said this is what would happen. So I'm gonna pray that you stop the rain. These people are not gonna wake up and they're not gonna listen and they're not gonna obey. So Elijah prayed and then it didn't rain for three years. And then last week we saw at the top of Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed for the Lord to make himself known there and to turn the hearts of the people. 
And then the Lord responded in this amazing, fantastic way. Fire came down from heaven and the people's hearts turned toward Yahweh. Elijah prays for rain then, and it rains. So every step of the way, Elijah is entering into God's courts and he's asking for God to do things and the Lord does it. Elijah is carrying on the steady conversation with God and the requests of Elijah are all answered. Now, in this episode, in chapter 19, Elijah's going to bring a complaint. He's going to bring a charge against Israel. Now, here's what's so frustrating to Elijah, that despite this remarkable display of God's power on Mount Carmel, despite the judgment of the prophets of Baal, the land is still under the rule of a wicked king and a wicked queen who seek his life. The people have still forsaken the covenant. They've still torn down the altars. They still pursue the prophets with a sword. And Elijah comes to the Lord and says, this is an absolute mess. This is a, this is a terrible situation. This is a desperate and dark time, Lord. Please bring order and set things right. That's what chapter 19 is all about. And we'll see God's response to that prayer. But first, let's catch up to Elijah and see what's been happening since the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Remember that after that event, King Ahab got a head start back to his fortress city of Jezreel in his chariot. King Ahab was in a chariot. Elijah was on foot. And Elijah beats Ahab back to the fortress city. Elijah runs ahead as a herald of the victory of Yahweh at uh, the mountain. Uh, he is running before the true king of Israel, uh, Yahweh. And when everybody gets back from the mountains, King Ahab tells his charming wife Jezebel about all that, is, all that has happened. Uh, chapter 19, verse one. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. If you didn't pick up on this last week, I want to bring this to your attention, that Elijah did not negotiate with the prophets of Baal. He didn't look for ways to work with them. He didn't meet them halfway. He defeats them. He uh, gave them an opportunity to repent. They had all day. That, that showdown, remember, they started in the morning crying out to Baal, and they went through the middle of the day, and they went all the way until dusk, running around, screaming like maniacs, cutting themselves, and at any point, any one of those 850 prophets of Baal could have said, you know what, um, I don't know, maybe this isn't working. Maybe we should try something else, and yet they don't. And then when the fire comes down from heaven, and all the people are crying out to Yahweh and saying he is God, not one of those 850 prophets of Baal responded in faith. They had an opportunity. They had an opportunity to call on the name of Yahweh, and they don't. And so Elijah calls for their execution, all 850 of them. They are a poison. They are a scourge. They are a curse. And they're leading people in rebellion against God. You want to work with the prophets of Baal? There's nothing to work with. There's nothing. There's no place to meet them. And... and you and I get so frustrated with American conservatism and with branches of the evangelical church that are always trying to negotiate with the serpent and with the seed of the serpent, to negotiate with the false prophets of our day, the priests of the American idols. We want to, we want to work with them as if if they just had someone to be nice to them, then you know that will fix everything. They're just waiting for the right nice 
fella to come along and be, you know, kind of uh, uh, very amiable, and that is what will fix the false prophets. That will, that's what will fix the serpent. And what we see in this uh, account from Elijah is that the prophets of Baal are not our allies. There is nothing to work with there. These are the people that we are here to defeat, not to compromise with. I always want to stop and point out, whenever I talk about the defeat of God's enemies, God's word is a two-edged sword. One edge, we have all been slain with the edge that uh, we have died to our sin. We have been raised to new life in Jesus. We have all died. We've all died to the old man. We've all been raised to new life. We have been conquered with the sword of the word. Thanks be to God that I have been conquered, you know, that I have not been left to live in my sin and then to die in my sin. But there's another edge to God's sword. Uh, it's one that he wields. It's not one that we wield. We don't punch you know, people in the face who don't believe the Lord. You know, we don't, we don't have, God has not given me the sword to execute the prophets of Baal. Um, but that is the sword of the Lord that he uses in justice and in judgment against his enemy. So I always want to be clear. When we talk about judgment and we talk about defeat, um, our job is to pray that they will be cut down with the first edge of the sword. I want them to die to their sins and I want them to be raised to new life. That's how I want them to be defeated as well. And if not, then we pray for their defeat by the other edge of the sword, the edge that is God's judgment, to just remove them from the face of the earth and to stop their blasphemy and to stop their oppression and to stop their tyranny. That is our prayer. So I always want to be clear what I'm talking about when I talk about defeating God's enemies. That's how he, he does it, and he does it through his sword. So Ahab goes back home, and he apparently walks into the house complaining about everything that happened at Mount Carmel. What's funny is that we saw him in the last chapter complying with Elijah and doing everything that Elijah asked him to do. Elijah said, get the prophets together, and Ahab said, that's a good idea. And Elijah says, set up the contest. And, and Ahab says, okay, we'll do that. And Elijah says, let's eat and drink. And they do it. And then and Elijah says, we better get back to Jezreel. And Ahab gets in his chariot and goes back. Everything that Elijah tells Ahab to do, he does. All that was at the command of Elijah. Let's not forget that Ahab is an Israelite. And when he's around Elijah, he acts like an Israelite. He, he's acting in Israel's best interest. But when he gets home, he starts acting like a Sidonian. He starts acting like one of Jezebel's people. He starts acting like his wife. He kind of wilts in front of Jezebel's anger and he begins to spin everything. He doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't take ownership. He doesn't stand up to his wife and say, look, God has just defeated your gods. Yahweh has just obliterated your Baal and your Asherah. So you better get right. Well, he doesn't. He, uh, he doesn't take joy in what God has done. Instead, he incites his wife against Elijah rather than Rather than taking the responsibility on himself, he says, well, you know, it was that Elijah who did all this. And then Elijah takes that as his invitation to get out of town. So verse two, Jezebel sent a messenger, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods to do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, as the life of one of the prophets, you killed my prophets, I'm gonna kill you. And may the gods curse me if you're alive this time tomorrow. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he left Israel. He left the northern kingdom, and he went down to the southern kingdom of Judah. Jezebel heard everything that happened. Jezebel heard about the fire from heaven. She heard about the prophets of Baal and Asherah defeated. She heard that the people called on Yahweh, and yet 
she does not repent over any of that. None of that moves her heart because uh, just as the Lord lit the fire on the altar, he needs to light a fire in Jezebel that he has not lit. He hasn't lit a fire of illumination in Jezebel. He hasn't sent his spirit. And so the darkness remains on her just as the darkness remained on Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God's works in front of Pharaoh's eyes. So, so even when an unbeliever says, show me something amazing and I'll believe, don't buy it. Uh, don't, don't think that their hearts are gonna be moved. They can see amazing things and still not believe. And so Jezebel's heart is hardened just as Pharaoh's and that's a clue to what's happening here. In our first week of the study, we saw how things were getting progressively worse in the days of Ahab. Before Elijah, before the drought, before the defeat of the prophets of Baal, things were pretty bad. Now you would think that the Lord is working through Elijah that things would start to get better now, but they aren't better. In fact, they're worse. When Elijah shows up to call Israel to repentance, things get worse and not better because now the prophets are being pursued and persecuted and killed. That's not Elijah's fault, and it's not the first time that something like this has ever happened. Remember when Moses came to Egypt to deliver his people, things don't get better at first. Things get a lot worse immediately. There's increased workload, there's the plagues, and the sentiment of the people of Israel, they say, thanks for nothing, Moses. Thanks for, you know, you could have just stayed out there in the wilderness with those sheep. You didn't have to come here and aggravate us because things get worse before they get better. When Jesus comes to Israel, he doesn't make things better immediately for the faithful who fear God. In fact, things get a lot worse. He says, I come to send a sword and it's gonna divide fathers and mothers. It's gonna divide children and parents. There's increased persecution and sacrifice. The demons are stirred up when Jesus comes and they try to oppose him and make a stand against him. But in every situation, the demons are stirred up, the monsters are stirred up so that they can be exposed and so that they can be dispatched. Just like in chapter 18, we saw very conveniently all 850 prophets of Baal are concentrated in one place. So when it comes time to deal with them, we know where they all are and we can deal with them all at once. But the point here is that when you pray for reformation, uh, expect things to get worse before they get better. And that's what happens when God's prophets come into a situation. It happens when Jesus comes, it happens when Moses comes, things get worse before they get better. And the fact that things are getting worse is kind of a sign that God is working, <laughs> that there's something going on, that God is moving and shaking things up. So Elijah comes and he shines the light on Israel and it stirs up the forces of evil and things get worse. So Elijah has to leave the land to avoid Jezebel for a while and then to understand what the Lord wants him to do next. So verse four, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now Yahweh take my life for I am no better than my father's. A lot of commentators and a lot of um, preachers try to psychoanalyze Elijah here, and I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say simply that it had to be emotionally exhausting to be through what he has just gone through. It had to be not only emotionally exhausting, but physically exhausting. I mean, he just ran a marathon from, you know, uh, uh, Mount Carmel to Jezreel um, on foot, and then, and then he gets there and he's um, accused and he's threatened, his life is threatened, and not only that, but the fact that Ahab and Jezebel are still reigning after all of this must have been immensely frustrating for Elijah. And so he complains to God that his efforts to reform Israel haven't been any more effective than any of the prophets to come before him. And he says, Lord, if you're done with me, 
just take me now. I'm not going to hang around Jezreel and, and let Jezebel get a victory over your kingdom. But if, if Lord, if you will it, if you want to take me, so be it. I just like to point out that, that this is very normal. This is a normal response to the kind of frustration and exhaustion and difficulty that Elijah's been through. It is normal to be sad at times in your life. It is normal to be frustrated. It is normal to come to the end of your resources and not know what to do next. That's all very, very normal. It's the voice of the accuser that tells you if you're sad, there must be something wrong with you. If you're frustrated or if you are uh, even angry or if you are exhausted, then there must be something wrong with you and you must be uh, sick in some way. Uh, the voice of the accuser says this is not normal, but this is all very, very normal and God doesn't leave Elijah in this place. He's there. It's normal to be sad at times. Just as there are happy times, there are sad times. And, and uh, you, you are uh, given these um, emotions and these senses by God uh, to, to train you, to, uh, to grow you up. The Lord Jesus was, was at, at times sorrowful and, 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 and frustrated and, and at the end of his physical self until uh, he was given strength by the Holy Spirit. So uh, this is Elijah now uh, about to be revived and about to be ministered to by uh, the Lord. Verse five, as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. The Lord knows that what Elijah needs more than anything right now is a nap, and he needs some food, and he needs some water. He needs something to eat, and he needs something to drink, and he needs to sleep. It's amazing what kind of perspective we can get and what encouragement we can gain from rest and a little food and a little, a little drink. Now, there's something more going on than just that. This food is provisioned to go to Mount Horeb, which we also know as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. It's the same mountain. And that journey takes him 40 days and 40 nights. It would ordinarily take... 10 days, unless you're deliberately taking extra time, which it is apparent that Elijah is. He's taking a period of 40 days to point to something else that God is doing here. Elijah's back out in the wilderness. He's eating bread and drinking water that has been miraculously provided. He's being directed by the angel of God. These are all echoes of the life of Moses in the life of Elijah. I just want to compare the two lives. Remember um, that at the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses stood as a testimony to the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, law and prophets, were there at the Mount of Transfiguration, both of them attesting to the validity and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so these two men, Elijah and Moses, have a lot in common. Just think about their stories. The first time that we see Moses he boldly defends an oppressed Israelite, and then he's exiled from the land. He goes out and he meets a woman at a well and gives her a son. Now, uh, 
Elijah hits the same beats. Elijah boldly opposes the oppression of Ahab. He is exiled from the land. He goes and meets a woman. He asks her for water and he raises her son from the dead. He gives her a son. He is a, uh, he's, he's in the role of a husband to that woman uh, in, in Sidon. Elijah uh, brought down a drought to Israel just as Moses uh, brought plagues to Egypt. And the plagues in Egypt mocked Egypt's gods, just as Elijah mocked Baal at Mount Carmel. After that, Moses has the Passover sacrifice and a feast. Elijah sacrificed a bull and ordered a feast at the top of Mount Carmel. The last plague in Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And Elijah ordered the killing of the prophets of Baal. Now, they were Jezebel's babies. They ate at her table. They were her, her precious little cuties that sat around her table. And uh, they were her firstborn. They stood in that place. And so both Moses and Elijah ordered the killing of the, of the, of the precious babies of both of them. Now, Moses and Elijah are both driven out of the land by a murderous ruler who threatens their life. They then both go to Mount Sinai. They're fed bread and water miraculously from heaven. They both name a successor. Moses then has Joshua. Elijah is about to have Elisha, who both, Joshua and Elisha, both go back into the land to fight idolaters, uh, people who are either Canaanites or acting like Canaanites. What does all this mean? Why are there so many parallels? Why is the story of Moses being recapitulated in the life of Elijah? Why are there so many connections between these two men? Why does Elijah deliberately take 40 days to go from the land to Mount Sinai? It's because he's deliberately showing us that something's going on in Elijah's day. We are recapitulating the story of the Exodus. Israel is now serving the role of Egypt. Once upon a time, Israel was blessed. They were favored by God, but now Israel is dead. They're worshiping idols. They're oppressive to believers. They're just like Egypt. Uh, Jezebel's heart is hardened in the face of the miracles of God, just as Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Israel is the new Egypt. And now they need a new deliverer to come and lead the people out of death, into life, out of bondage, into freedom. And so the fact that Elijah is acting as a new Moses helps put this next scene in perspective. Because Elijah goes to Mount Sinai to function as Moses did way back in the Exodus, except Moses acted as an intercessor. He met God face to face. He heard God's voice. And then Moses acted as an intercessor. Elijah is coming back to the place where the covenant was cast. And he comes now as a prosecuting attorney. And he says, God, remember that covenant you made with Moses? Yeah, the people have broken it. They've defiled your covenant. They have blasphemed. They've killed your prophets. They've torn down the altars. They worship other gods. They have broken that covenant you set up there. So Elijah comes back to the place where the covenant was established to bring charges against Israel for breaking that covenant. Verse 9, this is when Elijah gets to the mountain. He went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's not a rebuke. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 What are you doing? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who, who are you? Where are you going? That's not what he's saying. What are you doing here, Elijah, is a way of saying, What business do you have for us? You appear before the court for what purpose? Why are you, why are you here? What are your charges? Verse 10, so he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. 
They have torn down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. When he says, I alone am left, this is the second time he said this. Obadiah is a prophet, but he's undercover. There are a hundred other prophets that we just found out are hiding in caves in the last chapter. What he's saying is, I'm the only active prophet. I'm the only public prophet. I'm the only visible prophet, and they want to kill me. So no wonder the other ones are in hiding. They want to kill me, but I have been zealous for you, Lord, and I stand as witness to the fact that the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, they've torn down the altars, and they're pursuing your prophets with the sword. In verse 11, then he said, this is God speaking, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice or a calm, clear voice. Elijah stands on the mountain and he waits for Yahweh's armies to arrive. He waits for Yahweh's counsel to arrive. Three things pass by, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, all which bring to mind the glory cloud that we see throughout the scriptures, which is fiery and noisy and stormy, the cloud of, of, of God's angels who move and conquer and, and uh, uh, do his will. This, this glory cloud shakes the earth the wind tears up the mountains. The fire consumes. These are the Lord's armies represented by terrible, awesome judgment. But all of these things are nothing compared to the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord. The King James uh, has a lot of uh, translations that set us on a certain trajectory. And this is one of those that set the tradition with the translation, still small voice. That doesn't necessarily mean that God whispered. Uh, it's not like Elijah said, what, what, what was that? What was that? What, what, I, can't, I can't hear it. I heard the other stuff, but I can't, hear, I can't hear what God is saying. I don't think that's what's happening. There are a few different ways that we could translate this, but one of, one of them, and I think the best translation is a calm, clear voice. In other words, this is what's going on. The wind and the earthquake and the fire all made noise, but none of that is discernible language. What is distinct about the voice is not that it's quiet and you can't hear it. What's distinct about the voice is that it is discernible. It is a clear voice. It is articulate speech. It's something that we can hear and understand. It's the voice of God speaking the words of God. What happened the last time God spoke at Mount Sinai? Do you remember that? When the voice of God thundered from Mount Sinai, the people all quaked and they melted and they begged Moses, I don't know what that was, but don't ever let that happen again. We cannot bear the voice of God. We need a mediator. We need somebody to stand between us and that. We cannot bear that. When God thunders, it shattered their nerves when they heard the voice of God. So don't, I don't think of this as a, as a tiny whisper that Elijah really had to try to hear, but rather it was a clear, even piercing voice. And the point that the Lord is making is that all of these forces, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, which, by the way, all of Israel is looking to these things as the proof of Baal's power. They worship these forces. Baalism is worship of these natural forces. And the Lord is saying, you know, I control all of this. This is a polemic against Baalism. And, and the point here, here is that all of this is nothing compared to the voice of the Lord. You don't want to get caught out 
when any of these things are happen. You'd rather be caught in a hurricane or an earthquake or a fire, though, than to hear God directly without a mediator, to be face-to-face with him. Remember in Revelation when people actually hear uh, Jesus, when they're exposed to Jesus, they call for the rocks to fall on them. They call to hide. It's the same thing. This is a demonstration that the word of God is more terrible and terrifying and effective than any of the natural judgments that God is going to send. The word is more powerful than any earthquake or hurricane or fire or any other natural disaster. The word is mightier than any of these forces that people are currently subscribing to Baal prescribing to Baal. And that word is embodied in Elijah himself. Elijah is the bearer of the word. And so Elijah witnesses that, yeah, the Lord could send an earthquake and he could send fire and he could send wind. He's about to send his word. And this, in fact, is more terrifying than any of the others. This is more effective than any of the others. So uh, Elijah goes back into the cave, verse 13. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. What did Moses do? Moses wrapped his face in a veil, and here Elijah's doing the same thing. It's, it's uh, every, every verse you see these connections between Elijah and Moses. And Elijah went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. And he gets the same answer. He said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Yahweh once again asks his junior counselor to speak. Tell me what you're thinking now. And Elijah says the exact same thing that he did before. He brings the same charge. He brings the same prayer before the Lord, just like the uh, persistent widow in that parable who comes to the unjust judge, keeping She continues to ask for relief. The Lord wants to hear our prayers. And if you want something, repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. God is not frustrated by repeated prayers. In fact, he invites it. He wants to hear it. And so Elijah does the same thing. He says, I'm going to pray the exact same prayer. I'm going to bring the same thing. And the Lord doesn't rebuke Elijah for his lack of certainty about the way things are going. Instead, What Elijah gets is a to-do list. He gets something that he's going to do, three tasks which are going to result in the overthrow of Ahab. This is the wonderful thing about prayer and repetitive prayer, that you pray for a thing over and over and over and over, and then you start to say, well, what does God want me to do about this thing? What am I supposed to do? What is my role and what is my duty? And that's what Elijah gets. He prays for this thing and says, oh, I've got work to do, and here's here's your work, verse 15. Then Yahweh said to him, go... Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria, and you shall also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bound to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah is commissioned to go anoint three swords which are going to bring down the house of Ahab. Whoever's left after one judgment is going to be killed in the next judgment. Whoever's going to be left after that one is going to fall in the next if they don't repent. The Lord has just marched three of his armies in front of Elijah, earth, wind, and fire. Now he grants Elijah's request, here's how you're going to vindicate my name with three judgments. Number one, go anoint the king of Syria. Syria is going to be a thorn in the side of Israel. Israel's uh, going to be threatened by 
and bothered by and harassed by Syria as they grow in power and God is gonna use them as a source of judgment against Israel. So go anoint the king of Syria so that everybody knows that I'm doing this. I've, I've ordained this, God says. Secondly, go anoint Jehu. Jehu is the one who's going to bring a violent end to Ahab's kingdom. And thirdly, go anoint Elisha. Elisha is gonna pick up Elijah's prophetic office and serve as a new uh, Joshua to Elijah's Moses. So as Moses was to Joshua, so Elijah is going to be to Elisha. Elijah's charges against Israel have been met with three action items. You have work to do. This is how we're gonna to respond to the covenant breakers. Elijah has been brought up into the council of God. God has met with him. Elijah's complaints have been heard and received, and now Elijah is being sent out with a plan. In these last few verses, we get to see the calling of Elisha. Verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So just as Moses trained up Joshua, Elijah is going to train up Elisha. When we meet Elisha, he's working the land and he just happens to have 12 yoke of oxen. That's just a coincidence, there's nothing to it, don't worry, it's, not a, it's just 12 yoke of oxen, that's because of what it was. No, obviously, he is learning how to properly yoke and guide oxen so he can later yoke and guide Israel. It's, it's deliberate, just as Moses goes and tends to Jethro's sheep in the wilderness, which trains him to go and tend to Yahweh's sheep in the wilderness. This is what is going on with Elisha. Elisha knows how to plow and prepare the ground for planting. That's exactly what needs to happen to Israel. Israel needs to be plowed. Israel needs to be planted with the seed of faith and the word of the Lord. But it is kind of funny the way that Elijah just kind of throws his robe on Elisha. I, I, I tend to think Elijah must be this kind of eccentric guy. He, he's just walking by him and Elijah's, Elisha's working. Elisha's busy and he, he just takes off his mantle. He takes off his his robe, and he just throws it on him. And Elisha says, what's this? And he says, what do I got to do with you? I don't have any, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Why are you looking at me? It's this weird little exchange there that um, is, is funny that Elijah does this in a very cavalier way. Even though Elisha looks like a pretty successful farmer, he's got 12 teams of oxen. When he's called, he makes a sacrifice of his oxen. He uses the gear, the equipment to build a fire. And he cooks the oxen. It even says he boils the oxen. And I thought, wait a minute, boil? I mean, maybe roast, maybe barbecue, maybe smoke. That's not really boil. I looked at it's boil. So I don't. I know this wasn't England. I know they don't boil meat. Um, so I had to look and see where where else have we seen calves being boiled? Where where does this come up? Well, Moses and Aaron had sacrificed a, a bull when the priests were being ordained, and then they boil it and eat it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And of course, where there's ordination, 
there's lots of oil. So I'm going to use the judgment of charity and think that maybe Moses and Aaron used some oil in that, maybe some spices, maybe some other things. I hope they didn't just boil it, but I'm not making a judgment on their culinary expertise uh, other than that, just to say there's a lot of oil there and Moses and Aaron at the ordination celebration, at the ordination feast, they boil a, uh, a calf, they boil a, a bull. And so here, Elisha is being ordained. There's so much in the Bible about investiture, that the robe, being robed or enrobed gives you authority, like Joseph was robed with authority over his brothers. Um, like uh, Adam and Eve were given tunics of hides, tunics of skin as priests after the, um, after the fall, uh, the Lord sacrificed these animals and, and robed them uh, with his own righteousness, not those fig leaves that were, were their attempt to cover their nakedness, but he robes them. So there's all this language about robing and investiture in the Bible. And this is what is happening. Elisha is being um, robed with authority. He's being robed and ordained. And so he takes the uh, oxen and he takes all of their equipment and makes a big fire and he roasts the two oxen over the fire, which is enough food to feed a lot of people. And so it looks like he's throwing himself a little ordination party. And then he runs off and, and uh, finds Elijah and follows him. In the middle of this, it's apparent that Elisha is burning bridges to his old life. He runs back, he kisses mom and dad goodbye, doesn't know when he's going to see them again. He burns the uh, equipment. I'm not going to need this anymore. He kills the oxen. I'm not going back to my former work. I'm moving forward into the work that God is giving me. We're going to hear a lot more from Elisha before we're done with this study. But for now, briefly and quickly, what are we to make of all this? What do we, what do we think about this? In the first week of the study, we saw several similarities between Ahab's kingdom and our own society, and the unraveling that happens when people turn from God and turn toward idols. We saw in the middle of that that the Lord is not asleep. He sees everything, he hears everything, and he has a solution waiting in the wings, just as he did with Elijah. In the second week, we saw that the drought that Elijah had prayed for, uh, uh, in the midst of that, uh, as the Lord stopped the rain, he was still providing for his people in the midst of that. Even when the land was under judgment, the Lord was still caring for his people with the widow and with the, with the boy that Elijah tended to. Last week, we read about the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and we saw how true worship defeats the enemy and renews the world. Now this week, we see that when there's persistent oppression and terror being perpetrated in the world when wicked men and women refuse to repent even in the face of God's power and authority, God expects his faithful people, God expects his junior counselors to come before him and to bring their complaints. Come into my courts, come to Mount Sinai and bring your charges against this unruly, unfaithful, idolatrous generation. When you see violence and when you see oppression and you see idolatry being perpetrated in the world, your duty is to bring that into God's law court and plead the case. Lord, do you see what's happening? They're killing the innocent. They're destroying their babies in the womb. Their blood is on our hands and on the hands of this generation. Our land is full of bloodshed. Do you not see what they're doing, Lord? Stop this. Evil men around the world are abusing your people in the Middle East, in North Korea, and in China. Defend your people. Protect your heritage, Lord. Don't stop interceding. Don't stop crying out. Bring the Psalms. Sing the Psalms. Use the language of the Psalms against God's enemies. 
And when you say that you're going to pray for somebody, don't just say, I'm praying for you. Actually pray for them. (laughs) As in the South, we have this little way of saying, okay, I hope everything goes okay. I'll pray for you. And we don't. We don't do it. Uh, I'll pray for you is not just a way of saying, I care, or I'm thinking about you. Do that. Carry their name before God's throne and make your case. Boldly ask the Lord to hear your request. Jesus said, I call you friend. I bring you into the fellowship of the Father so that you can know what he's doing and so that you can bring your petitions. Why would you ignore that invitation? Why would you act like that's not powerful or effective? And just as you don't ignore your children, your father's not going to ignore you. Bring your petitions and the Lord will answer and he will send relief just as he did for Elijah. And then quickly, the other thought here is that uh, following the Lord in an idolatrous land can be very frustrating and leave you feeling very, very isolated. You start to believe, and I know you've thought this before, you wonder, am I the only one in my friend group? Am I the only one in my family who cares about what Jesus says? Am I the only one who can see the idolatry here? Am I the only one who can think critically about the world? Am I the only one who sees what's really happening? And you feel isolated. And Satan wants you to think that you're isolated because isolation leads to all kinds of doubt. It leads to anxiety. It leads to unfounded fear. You start to think that God's purposes in the world must be failing if I'm the only one who understands or thinks. You start to think that you're the crazy one even that it's abnormal to be upset about this. You think, well, if nobody else is upset, maybe I shouldn't be upset about all this idolatry. Maybe everybody else has it all figured out and I'm nuts. It's apparent that this feeling of isolation is what Elijah is going through. Three times he says, I'm alone. He says it in chapter 18. He says it twice in chapter 19. I am alone. And Yahweh's answer to that is, no, Elijah, You're not alone. Verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. Right now, there are 7,000 people in Israel who haven't given in, who haven't given up, who aren't complying with Baal worship. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you to one of them, Elijah. I'm going to send you out to find one of these men who haven't bowed to Baal. You go find Elisha. He's a good man. He's going to be your co-laborer. You're going to train him up. And the next chapter, chapter 20, we're going to see all these unnamed prophets showing up, dealing with Ahab. Uh, Elijah gets a break for a little while. Elijah was not alone. There were other prophets who stand up to Ahab. Elijah wasn't alone, and you're not alone. Obviously, you can look around and you say, I'm not alone. But Along about Tuesday or Wednesday, you start to think, maybe I am. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, the only one who thinks and believes. But in that time, don't isolate yourself. Don't withdraw. Don't despair. The Lord is building his church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. We're, we're not the minority. We don't lose. Jesus wins. There is no cause for despair. And while sadness and frustration are normal, it is normal, it mustn't stultify us. It mustn't render us incapacitated. Now, if I could oversimplify the prescription for Elijah here, I'm going to take a risk here. and I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to simplify this without oversimplifying it. The prescription for Elijah, when he sits under that broom tree and says, take me, Lord, I'm done. I'm so frustrated with what's going on. The prescription was for Elijah 
take a nap, eat something, drink something, make your petitions to God, come away from that with a to-do list, go find a friend and get to work. I'm gonna repeat that. (laughs) Here's what the prescription is for Elijah in his frustration. Take a nap, eat something, drink something, make your petitions to God, come away with that with an understanding, what am I supposed to do about this? Come away with a to-do list. Go find a friend and get to work. That's the duty of Elijah the prophet here. That's the prescription for him. And that's what's gonna bring God's purposes to fruition in Israel. This is what's going to bring repentance and reformation. And so this being God's description and prescription for Elijah, uh, there is wisdom in that for us as well. You are not alone. Uh, You are part of the mighty, formidable body of Christ that will not fail in history. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to all of us. We thank you for your word, and we ask you to uphold us just as you upheld Elijah in his sorrow and frustration. So strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.